Well, welcome, everybody. Wonderful to see you. Welcome to our first in a new series of Bible studies. I, seriously, I could not be more excited. I've been looking at Ecclesiastes uh, yesterday morning and then again this afternoon, and I'm like, my goodness. Um, somebody said, uh, is there a handout? Uh, and I thought, oh, maybe I should have done a handout. Then I thought, no, it would be kind of ironic to have a handout to Ecclesiastes, if you think about it. Like, as though, as though the book can be made to make sense when the book is about how life doesn't make sense, kind of. Um, anyway, that, well, that's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, there is no handout, um, but um, boy, have we got a treat in store, by God's grace. I hope you, have a, uh, you find it as exciting as I have, just um, looking through this stuff. I'm going to lead us in prayer, uh, and then we'll uh, begin by reading Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'll need your Bibles. We're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, just the first 11 verses, which should be plenty for us to deal with. Um, and I should say also, by the way, um, I'm going to make a renewed effort to make you guys work. I know it's like Wednesday evening and it's late and, yeah, but I'm tired, Pastor Jeffrey. We just want you to talk to us. No, 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 no. I'm going to actually try and get you guys to do some answering questions and, well, we'll see how that works. Anyway, let's pray and we shall begin. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for your word, the Bible, and for its richness and beauty and depth. We thank you that it speaks with such realism and clarity, unflinching truthfulness as it confronts every aspect of the lives that confront us. And so we ask now that you bless us richly as we have this time uh, to reflect on it together. Give us all insight and wisdom. Help us to help one another to think through Uh, what it says, and to benefit thereby that we may grow into closer conformity with our Lord Jesus Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already In the ages before us, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. (laughs) Slightly cynical attitude to life, you might think, which would be superficially perhaps something in it. But actually, I want to suggest it's not a cynical attitude to life that is embodied by um, the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I've got into the habit when I'm talking to somebody who's not a Christian or is a confused and, or perhaps themselves a slightly cynical, uh, disenchanted Christian, 
of recommending to them that they read not Romans or Luke or Galatians or Genesis, but Ecclesiastes. And the reason is because it seems to me difficult to find a book which so bluntly and honestly and clearly and vigorously confronts what life is actually like as we experience it. And for many people, the the problem they have with our faith is the Pollyannish, too good to be true, everything's happy smiley picture that we sometimes portray as though it's got no depth to it. I think it is a wonderfully joyful and happy thing to be a Christian. I, I, I love our fellowship meals. I love the time that we spend together. I love the fact that you know, even when you, you might find yourself life frustrating, we can still laugh and rejoice and, and enjoy the good things that God has given us. But sometimes we can give the impression that the Christian faith is like, well, um, uh, your life is miserable and now you need Jesus and that will make everything happy. <laughs> and it's like, will you please get real? And lots of people are jaded and cynical because that's what they've been sold. And they tried it for a few years and realized this ain't going anywhere. And so they kind of walked away and I don't blame them. And Ecclesiastes is like the, the shot in the arm. Sorry, that's probably a bad illustration at this stage of American contemporary <laughs> history. It's the, um, the, oh no, it's the, the undiluted triple scotch that you need to reinvigorate you of an evening. Um, because it is so unflinchingly honest and insightful about... It explains what we feel better than we can. It's a remarkable, wonderful, wonderful book. I'm going to resist the temptation to jump in and give you a summary. Um, We will get to a summary when we get to it in the text today. But I want to start just where the the book starts. And we just, just... Especially the first couple of verses, we'll work through quite slowly. I hope we get to verse 11. And, um, but we might not, it doesn't matter if we don't. Um, and I want us to just kind of unravel the text as it appears to us. So, verse 1, let's just jump in. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Here's the author, he's introducing himself. Who's the author? You want to say Solomon. Why do you want to say Solomon? Okay, so I've gone. There's somebody at the back. Mrs. Claghorn. Right, very good. At least two reasons. Known for wisdom, son of David. Yeah, Nan. All right, can we come to that? <laughs> Why it might be not Solomon. Um, okay, so um, just think for a second. Um, okay, son of David. Look, come on. Um, If you're going to say son of David and you're not really famous, you'd better qualify the description so that people don't accidentally think it's Solomon or Jesus. Because there are famous sons of David, Solomon, Jesus, and there are less famous ones. And and, um, just if it was some other grandson or relative or associate of David then to say son of David in an unadorned way is like making a claim to Solomonic authorship, which would be unfitting. And then, of course, the content. It's a wisdom book. It's numbered among the wisdom books of Scripture, along with Proverbs and Song of Songs, which were both written by Solomon. They say they're written by Solomon. Okay, um, and anything else that, that points to Solomonic authorship? Let me go over this side of the room. Uh, Uriah, go on, hit me. Well, don't hit me. Right, yeah, verse 12. 
Um, chapter 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, which kind of narrows it down a bit. Um, you've got it in verse 1 as well, haven't you? Um, the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. King in Jerusalem. Any, any, any other evidence that points to Solomon as the author? Chapter 1, verse 16. Yeah, Tim. Yeah. Why is the word preacher capitalized? Yeah, that's a very good question. Why is the word preacher capitalized? Let's come to that in a second, because, we, because one of the things we've got to figure out is, if it's Solomon, why not just say? Ah, we'll come to that. Uh, 116, yeah? 116, Okay. I commune with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. Right. So, making a claim to be the wisest man who's yet lived. You, like, you'd better be Solomon. <laughs> if, you're, if you're not somebody that we've not heard of, um, or Jesus, making a claim like that. Um, also, I mean, it's just interesting... Chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, well, 4, 5, 6, 7. Um, the accomplishments of this man. I made great works, planted vineyards, built houses, made gardens, pools, watered the forest of growing trees, male and female slaves. Verse 7, great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been, in, been before me in Jerusalem. So a king who had more than anybody before, I mean, I guess it could be David, but then it would say David. It says son of David. I mean... So Solomon, right? So why on earth not just come straight out and say so? No, no, it's great. It's be, is it because it's poetry? It's supposed to sound kind of expressive and cool. Do you say cool and flowery? I, I look forward to watching Solomon. Um, address you in glory and say, um, <clears throat> Ruth Bennett, um, <laughs> cool, I like, flowery. Okay, but it's, it's inter- there is a poetic element. I've actually got um, here, I'm going to read for you later, uh, one of Shakespeare's sonnets. And you can have that for nothing, okay? Um, it's uh, because I want to explain wh- what's significant about the, the, the broadly poetic or or at least symbolic aspects of it. So yeah, it's poetic. At least some parts are set out in um, uh, kind of verse, verse that are parallel lines like Hebrew poetry. But okay, that, that pushes the question back a step. Okay, so it's, it's got a poetic element to it, a metaphorical or symbolic element, but what's it symbolic of? What's it symbolic for? Yeah, Taylor. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's not an exclusive... Let me think through that. Hold on. It's not an exclusive perspective. Many people who are in the same situation will come to the same conclusions. That is really... I'd not thought of that. So, if he'd, if he'd given himself a, a specific name, like if said, um, the words of Solomon, it might look like this experience is unique to Solomon. That is fascinating. I think there's actually something definitely in that, which we'll get to shortly. Um, 
it, one of the things that's related to that is um, the use of the Hebrew word Adam, which is often translated man in the text. Um, it connects back to Genesis, um, and it's obviously a reference to that one historic individual, but also it encapsulates the experience of all people in, in different ways, which we'll see. That is really interesting. So he's almost depersonalizing himself to generalize his experience. Yeah, very good. Anne? Right, so almost removing the argument from authority. Yeah. Yes, good. So it's, it's forcing people to wrestle with the actual substance of it rather than just say, oh, well, Solomon says, I guess that must be right. And Yeah, po- possibly, possibly. And it's, it's very interesting because if he had entitled it uh, or, or given his name as Solomon, that would have, you'd have thought, made it easier for people to accept it as canonical. So here, what they have to do is, okay, we're going to have to look at this really carefully, which is what he wants. Yeah, I like that. Um, Nan? I think there would be reason to say that he wants to frame it, that it's not Solomon writing it. It's somebody that everyone in Israel should be looking for, who will be a son of David, a preacher, and a king. (laughs) So it is Solomon. Right. Yeah, that's a beautiful thought. So if you say Solomon, it takes your eyes off another son of David who's a preacher and a king. Who might we supposed to be thinking about? You know, yeah, Jesus. We might as well say his name. It, it actually encourages that broader set of theological and um, textual associations. So Solomon is... I mean, just think of it like that. Solomon is content to step into the background so that his infinitely more famous and significant long, long, long down the track relative can step to the center stage. And everyone can see that he's the teacher and he's the son of David and he's the king in Jerusalem who is now the king of the whole world. Ah, wonderful. We We should definitely get together and write a commentary about this which is actually a very significant observation that I want to move to right now. He doesn't call himself Solomon. What does he call himself? The preacher. Or does he? In the third person. Um, person. Um, Has anybody got a footnote that gives an alternative translation? Please, somebody shout out the footnote. The, the, okay, I'll tell you what I've got. Convener or collector? Uh, okay, that, that's not really very um, illuminating. Uh, go on, uh, Miss Duke. Mine says the gatherer, that's actually quite close. Um, do you want to learn a Hebrew word? Hebrew is a really cool language. We should all learn a Hebrew word. The, the name. Does anybody know the name? Kohelet. Kohelet. There we are. Do you want to all say that together? I didn't think so. That's fine. Um, the, the verb kohel... Oh, it's not a verb, it's a substantive participle. The verb kahal, from which kohelet comes, means to gather or to assemble together. It can be transitive. I'm gathering other people. It can be intransitive. 
um, we are gathering. Um, uh, and here it's the, the participle that comes from the verb. So it's the one who does the gathering. It's the convener of an assembly of people. It's the one who gathers everybody together. So, okay, let, let's, give, um, let's give our Bible translations their due. Why have they translated it as preacher then? Let's not be nasty and rude to Bible translators. It's a miserable job being a Bible translator. You'd, uh, everyone, nobody ever notices your work until they want to criticize it. Um, so wh- why, why call him, why translate it preacher? No, go ahead. Yes. Well, pre- in preaching, you're, you gather people to you. Right, right. In preaching, you gather people together. And it's a very strange word. It's only used in Ecclesiastes. I think it's only used in Ecclesiastes. The, 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 um, certainly only used in this sense in Ecclesiastes. The verb is very common. Um, but what it, it, ref, it reflects, the idea that um, these are the words of the one who's gathering everybody together. Like a shepherd, like a king. Um, like Solomon did. We'll come to that. But back to your, my, my slightly whimsical comment a moment ago. Hey, we should write a commentary on this. Um, I had four or five reasons why his name is not given as Solomon. You guys, between you, came up with two or three more. How did you do that? How did we all do that? Sorry, Mrs. Bennett, go ahead. Then, Yeah. Right. Um, the gathering, especially in the context of reading it and reflecting on it, is a gathering together to bring our distinctive perspectives to bear on it. The, the thought that he's described here as the, the one who assembles everybody suggests that if we all get together, we might make progress. You ever had that experience of I, I've actually had it lots of times in, in biblical study. I remember um, way back, first job I ever had in a church, I was a, a very, very lowly um, intern with five other interns, chair shifters, basically. Uh, there were other churches in our group of churches where they actually called the interns slaves, <laughs> like only half jokingly. And, and, um, and but we used to have these wonderful kind of Bible study workshops on Wednesday mornings with our senior pastor. And I came, I used to just, they used to just blow my mind. We just studied the Bible for two or three hours together. And the things that we saw together, I, they always staggered me with the, the kind of insights that the Lord gave us through being together. And I remember saying to uh, Richard, senior pastor at one point, I, I want to learn to reproduce on my own what we're able to do together. And he just looked at me and like... <laughs> and I realized, as I said it, that I was, I was hoping for something which is just not in the way that God does things. Obviously, there is a kind of wisdom that comes from responding to Kohelet, responding to the one who gathers us together, um, coming together to listen and to think and to contribute. And how many people we've had? 
one, two, three, four, five, uh, six, seven, eight, nine, um, ten, eleven people already, plus me, maybe more, who've already contributed to the kahal, the assembly. And it's one of the most significant points that can emerge from this whole book, which is that you will not be able to navigate life's perplexities alone. You, you, you can't do it. And uh, it's not just about studying the book. It's about what we need in order to put into practice the things that we're going to be learning from the book. Um, and, and the book itself talks about somebody who's on their own and how miserable and uh, unseemly and lost such a person would be. Yeah, no. Yeah, do I think that observation is a Trinitarian observation? Probably a safe bet to say yes, isn't it? If somebody says, do you think that's a Trinitarian point? It's like, uh, probably best to say yes, even if you can't figure out how, because everything's Trinitarian. Yeah, God, the, the, the ultimate thing that exists is an assembly. Yeah? And God the Father and Son and the Spirit each respond, perhaps particularly to the Father as Kohelet. The Father is the one who brings into being the assembly, in fact. By being the Father, he brings into being the Son and the Spirit. By being the speaker, he brings, in, he brings into being the breath and the word, Spirit and Son. So, yeah, this is... It's not just that we... Oh, yeah, I can learn something from Mrs. Razor if I just sit and listen. It's, yeah, that's true... And we're reflecting Trinitarian divine life by our community together. So don't take the message of the book of Ecclesiastes and think, right, got it nailed now. I can go off on my own because it's just going to promise you it'll be a catastrophe. Um, I think there's another thing as well. Um, the, the author veils or hides his identity because the message of the book is that the meaning of life is often veiled from us, in a sense. And there's lots of messages to the book. But the author is doing with himself what God in his providence does with us and with our experience of life. Like, who is this guy? You're you're just left puzzled. And then you have to try and scratch around to figure it out. And then you step out into the world and you're faced with a situation and you think, what am I supposed to do? And then you have to scratch around and figure it out. It's the same experience or a mirror of that experience. Trying to pick away at the veiled identity of the author or trying to unravel the veiled character of the lives that are set before us and to figure out what to do and how to live. So um, there's uh, that's what's going on in verse 1, but we haven't, fin- <laughs> I haven't finished with verse 1 yet because we've got Solomon, and you gave me 7, 8, 9, 24 reasons why it's Solomon. Very good. And then we've got, okay, the word he actually uses is Kohelet, the one who gathers the assembly. So Solomon, we've thought about that. Kohelet, we've thought about that. What are we going to do next? With these two ideas, Nicole put them together. 
if it's Solomon and the one who kahals, gathers the assembly, we might want to know, um, where in the Bible does Solomon ever gather anything or anyone? Are there any places in the Bible where Solomon kahals? Apart from the wives. Yes, thanks for that. Um, which is a point worth making, isn't it? Um, and I mean, that takes us to the... Um, it's, yeah, horses and gold. So we get, I don't know whether the verb is used there. I'm pretty sure it's not, actually. Um, there's one, I'll come to it in a second. There's only one place in Solomon's life where the verb kahal is used with Solomon as the subject. But just before we get to it, he does, even though the verb isn't used, he does gather horses, shouldn't do that, Deuteronomy. Gold, shouldn't do that, Deuteronomy. Wives, shouldn't do that. So it's quite a good job, actually, that Solomon is willing to step to the side. We'd actually quite like a greater Solomon, all things considered, if that's all right with you. So please get out of the way. Step aside and make, make way for the preacher, the king, the son of David. So it's a, it's a really important point. Solomon is not, for all his wisdom, he's not like the ultimate. So very good. Okay, there's one place. Oh, go on then, Nan. Maybe you know. Go on. Go ahead. Ah, oh, yes. First Kings 8. Who else, who else was thinking First Kings chapter 8? The temple. Nicole. <laughs> oh, you all were. That's awesome. Yeah, of course you were. All right. Turn to First Kings 8. This is how you've got to read, by the way, a book, a biblical, any biblical book. Um, and uh, it's tempting to, whenever you get to any particular book of the Bible, to say, oh, this book is uniquely elusive and complex. And the whole Bible is like this. The way to read it is to be sensitive to the subtlest of hints about what it might mean. So we've got Solomon. We've got the one who kahals the assembly. Well, chapter, uh, 1 Kings 8, verse 1, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. Why would he do that? To bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So, why is that significant then? What we've got is... In Ecclesiastes, we've got a man, Solomon, obviously Solomon, who describes himself as the one who gathers the assembly. The only place where Solomon actually gathers the assembly in the whole Bible is when he's gathering the people to dedicate the temple. Why would you um, make that association? That's an important thing that he did, yes. Uh, Taylor? Right, good. There's, in First Kings 8, they're supposed to be unified in purpose to honour God, to pay homage to him. Um, yeah, very good. Is, can we think of a connection between the temple themes of First Kings 8? You know what happens in First Kings 8? Yeah? It's, it's Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. So he's got the temple, it's all been built. He gets all the people together, he brings the Ark of the Covenant in, then verse 12, uh, he blesses the Lord. Verse 22, he prays this massive long prayer all the way down to two-thirds of the way through the chapter. Then he blesses the people, and then he uh, offers a bunch of sacrifices, and they all have a great celebration. So it's, a, it's the inauguration of 
the worship of God in the temple. It's, it's approaching the high point of the whole history of the people of Israel. 1 Kings 8, 9, and 10. So why, what's that got to do with Ecclesiastes? Yeah. Because we need to remember that when life is confusing. Right. We need to remember that when life is confusing. God is present with his people. I know a psalm about that, actually, now you mention it. I, um, I don't think I've ever told anybody this story. I don't think I've even told Nicole this story. Um, so I won't tell you it now. Where's the psalm? When David is, um, he's tortured with confusion over the righteous perishing and the wicked prospering. And then he says, then I entered the assembly of God and I understood their final destiny. Where's that? It's not Psalm 63. 73. I thought it was 73. Yes, here it is. Yes, 73, um, 16 and 17. Um, so he starts off with this kind of profession of faith. I thought it was 73. I turned to it, and then I couldn't find the reference. It's right in the middle. Of course it is. Oh. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Here's why. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All the wicked are doing fine. The unrighteous prosper. I'm suffering. It's Asaph, not David. My apologies. They have no pangs before death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in any trouble. They're not stricken by the re- like the rest of mankind. He's looking around at the injustice and the confusion of the world, and he can't put two and two together. He can't figure it out. And verse 16, when I thought, how to understand all this, it seemed to me like a wearisome task, which just sounds a little bit like language of Ecclesiastes, if you know the book, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And that's the turning point of the whole psalm. It's his encounter with God, and Asaph is a leader in the worship of the people of God. His encounter with God in worship, like 1 Kings 8, which allows him to make sense of the confusion and perplexity and injustice which he sees all around him. Which is what Ecclesiastes is all about. It's not what it's all about. It's one of the themes one of the themes in Ecclesiastes, which we'll see, is um, the, the wicked prospering, and then there's a righteous man who dies and he's forgotten, and nobody even remembers his name. I mean, he saved a city, his old wise man who saved the city, and nobody even remembers him. That doesn't seem right. No. How do you make sense of that? Well, you make sense of it somehow. Coming to God in worship allows you to make sense of the confusion of the world. Does it? Maybe. No. It's connection between this temple moment and Ecclesiastes everything to do with the actual word Ecclesiastes, which is where we get theology, which is the study of the church and how it should act. Yeah, is it anything to do with the, the, the actual title in English, which comes from the Greek word ecclesia? Um, uh, in a sense it is, yes, because the Greek word ecclesia is how the um, Hebrew kahal is translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament. 
So when um, the people of God around Sinai, for example, are called, they're, they're said to kahal, to assemble, uh, as the assembly. And the word assembly is ecclesia in Greek, in the Greek translation. Which, which, and we get ecclesiastical, that is to, to do with the church, to do with the assembly, hence ecclesiastes. So ecclesiastes is actually quite a good title um, because it reflects, if, if we all knew Greek, that it would be a good title. Um, maybe... Um, the Book of the Assembly would be a, uh, an English title that we could resonate with. So, yeah. I think that's what's partly what's going on. Um, for all that Solomon is going to go on to say, to, to try to unpick the complexity and confusion of life, he doesn't want to think you can just do it without going to the Assembly. If you think you can navigate life even with the book of Ecclesiastes, and neglect the gathering, as the author of Hebrews would say, we just had Hebrews with Pastor Neil. If you think you can manage that, think again. What we need is to come with Solomon to the kahal of 1 Kings 8, the assembly, the gathering to worship him. And then we turn to Ecclesiastes and think, right, now what are we going to do out there in the world? And one of the great things that I think our denomination has rediscovered in um, recent decades, and not just our denomination, but reformed people uh, of various stripes in the US and elsewhere, have rediscovered the, the way that worship is supposed to, so to speak, set you up for life. It's supposed to be um, not quite um, fuel for life, but more than that. But it's, it's, it sets you on the right track for living life out in the world. Um, and I think that's been a glorious rediscovery. I think one of the Challenges is we, we pendulums swing like pendulums do, and we could easily let our focus move from thinking about how to live in the world, like many of our evangelical friends think a lot about how to live in the world, how to witness to their friends, how to be godly in a hostile environment and so on. And we swing all the way back the other way, and we think of the First Kings 8 Kahal assembly. We spend a lot of time thinking about how we worship God, and, and we, we love our gatherings for worship and our gatherings of uh, our fellowship meals and so on. Well, Ecclesiastes is here to, uh, with a message for you to, to get the pendulum stuck back in the middle again so that we're both uh, being fueled by and enriched by our worship of God in the kahal, the assembly, and being equipped by Kohelet to go out into the world and figure out what's going on out there. And we need both of those emphases. You with me? Um, so we still haven't finished with Kahal, obviously. There's more to think about. Um, can you think of anywhere in the Bible where the opposite of a gathering took place? Okay. Yeah, Mr. Loki, Tower of Babel. You remember, do you want to remind us what happened? Right. He had to split them up, yeah. Very good, very good. Excellent, confusion. So it's Genesis 11. This is an ungodly gathering. So all the nations of the world said, come on, let's gather together and build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Nothing will be impossible for us. We'll be able to do everything. So they're trying to gather. They're trying to kahal. 
they're trying to climb their way up to God. It's a proud and arrogant attempt to unify and almost create a way to God for themselves. And God, the text says God went down to look at their tower. Like your puny little tower. He went down to look at it. And then, remember what he did? He scattered them and he confused them. Confused their languages. Which is why um, Pentecost, when everyone can understand each other, even though their languages are different, that's the reverse of Babel. Well, Ecclesiastes is the reverse of Babel as well. Because you're between Babel and Pentecost. The world is confused in the days of Solomon. What do you need? Well, you need somebody to unpick the confusion. Let's reverse Babel. Let's gather everybody together. And let's speak a little bit of common sense into the madness, which will first involve identifying the madness. And really, that's a lot of what Ecclesiastes is about. It's about pointing at the insanity of the world or pointing at the confusion and frustration of the world so that we're primed for it. If you think life is going to be easy, I'm looking here at a newly married couple. It's like, yay, we're married. All our problems are over. <laughs> and it, Well, some of your problems are over, but you've just created a whole bunch of new problems. And, and if you thought that you could go into married life and you basically, oh, wonderful, we've got each other now, everything's going to be all right. Well, some things are going to be all right, and some things are all right, but you'll have, who knows? Well, how are you going to navigate that? Well, you need somebody to point out the, the sources of confusion. You're going to find your work really frustrating, even if you get that dream job. And you're going to find his work really frustrating, especially if he gets that dream job, you know. And, but then if he doesn't get that and gets something else, and you think, wonderful, he's got a job where, oh, hold on, this is frustrating as well. Everything will find, there'll be some way in which things don't work out in the, and you need Ecclesiastes to unpick complexity and the chaos for you. And some of you who've been married for longer, for example, you think back to how you thought it would be, and you, you probably wouldn't have chosen this path. I mean, I, I'm not wanting to suggest that you're not grateful for where you are. Um, my conversations with most of you, um, I'm seeing quite a lot of gratitude for where you are, but hands up if you'd have chosen this path to get to here. Like, if you could have had an easier... Yeah, we'd all have picked... I'd have picked an easier path, I tell you. I'd have got a visa about a year and a half before it came through. That would have been one step in an easier direction. But the path is complex and winding and strewn with thorns and thistles. Oh, hint of where we're going. And so we need to come together so that God can liberate us from the curse of babelic confusion and help us to understand our lives. And we're on the way to Pentecost. Well, we're now viewing it from the other side of Pentecost. So really, um, the life of the Spirit, which is ours in Christ, by the Spirit who unites us to Christ, remember Ephesians? Um, this means we look back at Ecclesiastes and we see with, we'd hope we'd be able to see with fresh clarity how some of the tensions which Ecclesiastes points to might be resolved. It's not that they would go away, but we can at least see how they might be resolved. So, the words of the preacher, the son of David, no, the words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Let me pause for a second, see if you want to talk about any of that anymore, and then we'll just think of... (laughs) 
Um, we're halfway through verse 1, by the way, just so you know. Um, halfway through my notes on it. Any, any questions so far? Are you all happy? Okay. Um, guess what I did then when I, I was looking on my computer and my little Bible software because it's, it's really cool Bible software. It shows you Hebrew words and it translates them for you. So if you've forgotten your vocabulary, you can be rescued. Um, and I came across this peculiar word, Kohelet. Guess what I did? Search the whole book for it. Guess how many times the word Kohelet appears in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know it's going to be 12, 10, 144,000. <laughs> it's 122 notes. Yeah, very good. Yeah. No, it's seven. And, and what you say what you thought. Now, this, this, is, this totally blew my mind when I realized this. So three of them are right at the beginning. Verse 1, the words of Kohelet, um, and then you've got um, verse 2, vanity of vanities, say, oh, well, vanity, we need to go back to that as well. So, okay, leave it for now, it says Kohelet, and then verse 12, I, Kohelet, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. So you've got three at the beginning, guess where you've got another three? The end. And then there's one in the middle, you're getting the hang of this now. Can you, no, 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 no. I don't think it, I haven't checked whether there's a chiasm yet. You can check if you like, but in your own time, don't do it now. Okay, you've got three at the end. Um, chapter 12, <laughs> stop making me laugh, this is ridiculous. Um, tw- chapter 12, verse 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Well, that's what you'd expect him to say, because he said that at the beginning, obviously. And then uh, chapter 12, verse 9, besides being wise, Kohelet also taught the people knowledge and all the proverbs and well, obviously, he did, because we know it's Solomon. We're not surprised, because he knows loads of Proverbs. And then verse 10, the preacher, Kohelet, sought to find words of delight, yada, yada, yada. So you've got three Kohelets at the beginning, three at the end, and there's one in the middle, right in the heart of the book. Anybody know where it is? Chapter 7. Turn to chapter 7. Um, verse 20, did you say verse 27? Well done. By the way, watch out for this young lady because she's in one of my Bible and theology classes and she's very, very fast with her Bible knowledge. Yeah? <laughs> I've got my eye on you, Sarah Bennett. Okay, all right, anyway. Um, now, this is, this is going to freak you out. Um, verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. Now, we'll just stop there for a second. It's right at the heart of the book and it's introduced with a very emphatic... The technical word is a particle. Behold, hine is the Hebrew word. It's like a, hey, watch out, pay attention to this. Behold, it's a a sonorous and dramatic announcement. The kind of thing that you'd use to introduce a short section which is at the heart of the book and captures the heart of the message of the book. Perhaps. (laughs) So let's read. Um, well, we have to go back at um, verse 25. Let me, let me um, go back. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things. Well, good luck with that. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is... Now, don't leap down his throat just yet, ladies, okay? The woman more bitter than death, whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Obviously, Solomon, Proverbs chapter 5. 
He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, said the preacher, adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I've not found. See, this alone is what I found. This is the climax of the central section introduced by Behold. Kohelet is right there in the middle of the whole book. This is what it is all about. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. What event or events in scripture is that a reference to? God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The fall of man, yes, thank you. God made man upright, creation, but they have sought out many schemes, fall. So what is the book of Ecclesiastes about? Obviously, it is about the kind of way you can expect the world to work, given that it is both created by God and broken by sin. That's pretty simple, right? It's created by God. It's beautiful and rich and glorious and spectacular and shattered by the foolishness and deceitfulness of people. They've sought out many schemes. Why does he say one among a thousand wives found, but a woman among all these I have not found? He said like a lot of wives were saying that a woman among these I didn't know Solomon was a Mormon. Yeah, you didn't know Solomon. But why does it say... So, okay, we will definitely spend a bit of time on this when we get there, because we've got to think about Solomon's life at some point. Um... What, let's be honest, what do you make of, of a man who writes the book of Proverbs, about, which has all the stuff in it about the, the, the deceptive, immoral woman, and who writes this, whose you know, hands are chains, heart as snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, she's more bitter than... She writes that, he writes that about women, and then he has 700 wives and 300 concubines, and his wives lead him astray. What do you, what do you call a man like that? Fool, hypocrite, right. Any, an idiot? Like, wait, you, you literally wrote the books, plural, on avoiding the temptations of sexual sin, Solomon. And you completely ruined the whole history of the people of God at their highest point by your infidelity. Well done, you fool. You know, that... We've got to interrogate that. Yeah, Ruth. I was just going to say, I think that the fact that he had a thousand women that he was, you know, in some right. kind of a relationship with, they, they couldn't have been very happy with the situation either. Right, so no. it's true that they weren't terribly, you know, affectionate to him. And if he was just looking, you know, all these, all these people that he brought in as, like, political, you know, alliances, yeah, like, yeah. he wasn't looking for a godly partner. He was just, he, he wanted another, you know, oh, well, now they can't come after me. Right, exactly. It's political alliances. Right. No, exactly. The the, the I, I couldn't put it better myself. I won't try and add to it. It's it's just the point that Ruth's alluding to, of course, is that those wives. He probably didn't even know all their names, for goodness' sake. You don't know a thousand people's names. Almost nobody does. About two hundred and fifty is about the limit for people. And these are their political trophies. Exactly right. So. So 
when we get to the centre of the book and we're starting to think about Solomon's character, you then start pointing the finger at Solomon, of course, and think, wow, I'd have done such a better job than him. Huh. And then you, all those other fingers start pointing back at you. We, we've got to reflect on that. Mr. Loki. Yeah, you do wonder, don't you? Yeah, did he ever find... I mean, Abigail, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's, Solomon is a really tragic figure in so many ways. Yeah. Uh, Nanya? Is there any way at all that the one man among a thousand amounts and a woman among all these five amounts Yeah. I think probably, I need to think about this more, and we will think about it when we get there. I'm starting to regret taking you to chapter 7, by the way, because it's just too interesting. But we will think about it. The one man among a thousand I've found, but a woman I've not found. It's a, it's a rhetorical, poetic device, um, way of saying, yeah, that, um, uh, w- women are the cause of the problem. And you're like, Phew. yes, Genesis 3. But where was the man? Well, exactly. Um, so it's the fall of Adam that is identified in Romans 5 as the problem, not the fall of Eve. Um, so step up, Adam, that is to say, men in general. Um, yeah, this, we, we've got to stop, otherwise we're just going to missing out the first six chapters. So, um, uh, oh yeah, but the other thing, finally, before we leave um, the solomon Kohelet point, remember that Solomon, the ruler, the king is in some sense, notwithstanding his flaws, which are many, fulfilling Adam's vocation. Just in general terms, that's a biblical theme which is worth thinking about. And then you see um, the heart of the book. God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. So maybe what it's suggesting is, Okay, so we had a fallen, sinful Adam. Solomon is supposed to be a picture, or at least is creating here a literary picture of one who will overcome the failings and flaws of the first Adam. Adam was supposed to rule the world. Think of, and then think of um, Mark Horne's excellent little book, um, Solomon Says. Um, all of us are given a, a portion of the world to rule. Great Um, cultural mandate, Genesis 1, and uh, that includes ourselves, and then Mark Horn says, perhaps even especially himself. Maybe the first thing we're supposed to control is ourselves, to take dominion over our own desires, so to speak. Um, Men, uh, Saturday's Men's Discipleship Breakfast, footnote to that, we'll come back to this then. Um, uh, The the failure of Adam was supposed to be Solomon's success. It was the greater Solomon's success. It's what Ecclesiastes is trying to help us to deal with. So there you've got a picture of um, the author, uh, a sketch of some of the big themes in the book, um, a whole bunch of other things thrown in. You can have that for free. You're welcome. And that's verse one. Uh, Do you want to look at verse two? Have we got time? Oh, yeah, we've got loads of time. Um, Uh, Right, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, um, 
Does anybody have a translation in front of them which doesn't say vanity? Yeah. You've got meaningless, which is New International Version, is that right? Yeah, yeah wonderful. Uh, we've got vanity, we've got mist. Um, sorry, did you say mist? Yeah, which translation is that? Our oh, footnote in the ESV, yeah, very good. Um, anybody got anything else apart from, uh, yeah? In, in the New King James footnote, it's absurdity or frustration, futility, nonsense. Right, absurdity, frustration, futility, nonsense. Mere breath. Anybody else got something like that? Breath, vapor? Yeah, Buck. Vapor, right. Okay, so what's going on here? Right. What you have is the Hebrew, you want to learn another Hebrew word? Um, you've got kohelet, means the convener of the kahal, the assembly. The word translated vanity or all these other things is hevel. Hevel. It's H E B E L. But the B is a soft B, so you pronounce it like a V. If you want to pronounce it, write it phonetically, H-E-V-E-L, Hevel. Um, make a note of that, because we're going to come back to it. Um, and, and what normally happens is um, people try to give a... a con- um, no, an abstract kind of summary of what it means... And so the word appears many, many times, dozens of times in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And people come up with uh, vanity, absurdity, frustration. Um, uh, what were the other things in your footnote? Um, futility. Futility. And nonsense. Nonsense, right. Now, there's a really significant move being made here, which I want to just spend a minute or two thinking about. The word means mist or vapour. That's what it means. It's a concrete term. And it's metaphorically used here to mean something else or some other things. So what, what are we all tempted to do? If, if I say um, vapour of vapours, vapour of vapours, all is vapour or mist, of mists, all is mist, or all is wind, all is breath. What, what are you tempted to ask? Um, so, like, what we see isn't real. Yeah, what we see isn't real. Yeah, we. What we see doesn't last forever. It's gone. It's gone in quick, collective breath from the wind. Right. It is doing that thing of the Holy of Holies does. So Hevel of Hevels is like God of gods. It's the greatest of all the gods. Um, The most holy of all the holy things. The most breath-like of all the breath-like things. Mr. Herrera. Illusion. You like the word illusion? Hmm. What we pursue in this world is illusion. I, I think there's a, there may be senses in which that's true in some context. I'm pretty sure it's not here. Let me, let me just talk a minute more. Just to, I want to try and highlight for you something methodologically significant here. The word hevel is a concrete image. 
mist or vapour or fog or breath. And what translators typically do is they think, okay, what does that mean? And they pick an abstract idea which they think corresponds to it, like futility or vanity or emptiness or frustration. Can you see the difference? If I say life is like mist, that's an image, it's a concrete it's not concrete, it's mist. But it's, a, it's a, a thing. Whereas if I say life is futile, futile is an abstract description. And the temptation for us to make this move from abstract, sorry, from concrete to abstract is almost irresistible. And I want to urge you to resist it. And the reason is because... Concrete images always convey more different things than abstractions. Hevel, and I'll show you in the, in the book itself in a minute, conveys many, many different things. It can't be reduced to one idea. And I was toying with this yesterday. I thought, because this is going to be quite a brain drain Bible study, I thought I'd, I'd give you a quick break by... Here's an illustration. This is my book of Shakespeare's sonnets. I read one of these to Nicole yesterday evening. It was a date night. Yeah, I know, old romantic. Sorry about that. Um, anyway, so, so I'm, I'm going to read sonnet 116. Do you all know sonnet 116? Let me not to the marriage of true minds, all that kind of thing. Right? Well, I'm, I'm, going to read, I'm going to read sonnet 116, which is full of concrete images. And then I'm going to give you an abstract summary, and I want you to tell me which one is best. All right? Is it going to be embarrassing? Not to me. (laughs) Or or maybe it is. It's going to be embarrassing to my wife, I think. Well, I try and read Shakespeare. Okay. Don't make me laugh, Samuel. Um, Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove oh no it is an ever fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken it is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown although his height be taken loves not time's fool though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. There we are. That's a reasonably good poem, read badly. Right, now, here's, here's an attempt to explain what it means. Um, uh, love is a really lasting thing uh, which um, can guide you like a star guides a ship. And even though you might get a bit old and ugly, it will still endure. (laughs) Now, which do you prefer? Like, I've explained the text to you. What's your problem? I've given you a bunch of abstractions. Don't they elucidate the image? No. They don't come close, do they? Um, Though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come, all the assonance and alliteration and the image of death with his sickle 
hacking down the rosy lips and cheeks. Or, like, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. BCP marriage service, yeah? Anyone knows any just cause or impediment why these two may not be joined in holy matrimony? Let them declare it now. There are 13 or 14 words in this poem which are all taken from the Book of Common Prayer marriage service. Nothing in my summary made those allusions. The the poem, because, because it is concrete, conveys far, far more by making multiple associations in different directions than an abstraction could ever convey. Are you with me? So, uh, it is the star to every wandering bark. What on earth is that? We know a bark is like a ship. And the star is probably the pole star. The wandering, the wandering bark is that it's lost on the sea, and it's the pole star, so you know um, where you are on the sea. Um, because... Uh, it's worth unknown though its height be taken, which is how you measure longitude on the sea when you're trying to figure out where you are, you see? It's, but it's, it's much more than that. There are many, many... It's Shakespeare, for goodness sake. It's full of richness and depth and complexity. And you don't gain by reducing it to a sing, single abstraction. Love is really long-lasting in spite of everything. It's like, please... You, You need to try and retain the concrete image and let it play in different directions, in different contexts. And the challenge is to combine the the control of having, you know, this is the image, it doesn't mean anything, but allowing it to resonate in different ways in different parts of the book. So... For example, um, if you look for the occurrences of Hevel in the book, you find, I'm going to skim through some examples here. Um, Chapter 1, verse 14. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. It's like a general statement of, what Hevel is. Everything is Hevel and clutching after the mist. Then sometimes it's more specific. Chapter 2, verse 15. I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart, this also is Hevel. Like, I I spent ages at school, went to college, got a good job, thought about life, planned... Um, worked through all my decisions and then I ended up in the same place in the same job as some Muppet who just kind of dropped into it because his dad got him the job. Like, why did I bother? Yeah, that's Hevel, that is. <laughs> just a little Hevel. It's really Hevel. Mist. Perplexity. Chapter 3, verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. I drove past a dead squirrel on the way to work a couple of days ago. Dead squirrel, dead man. Both dead, 
That's Hevel, that is. It's like frustrating, but not frustrating. It's, it's more than that, isn't it? Um, what about chapter 4, verse 4? Take another example. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbour. This also is Hevel. That interesting. That the motivations that drive people, even to do good things, are sometimes bad motivations. That's Hevel, that is. That's what happens in a world where God made man upright and they've sought out many schemes. Chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is Hevel. Like if you, you, you can never make enough money to overcome discontentment. Like content, discontentment is a bottomless pit into which you can pour yourself and everything and you'll never fill it up. That's Hevel. Try and fix life by adding to your stuff. Yeah, best of luck. Um, chapter 4, verse 16, just back a chapter. Um, well, this is chapter 4 to, it's 13 to 16. I'm um, oh, sorry, no, I've, I've, I've picked the wrong text. Um, I'll come back to that one another time. Um, chapter 5, verse 7. This is interesting. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is Hevel. Is, what's going on there? Dreams increase, words grow many. You've got a dreamer who's full of it and all this, and oh, when I'm uh, next year, I'm going to do this and that and the other thing, and oh, it's going to be great, and I've got this plan to do this. And it's like, words are many. Dreams, dreams, dreams. You're still going to be there in 10 years' time, dreaming your little dreams. It's heaven. Um, chapter 6, verse 2. Well, six, uh, 1 and 2. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, and so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This man doesn't lack contentment. He's, he's actually got everything he wants. Maybe he's got less than the man who just keeps wanting to add to his fields and everything else. But God doesn't give him the power to enjoy them. How might that happen? I don't know, illness? Uh, Bereavement? Oh, goodness. Think of the scenarios in which, like, all so tragic and painfully common where you know, you, you and your wife or you and your husband have been planning for years what you're going to do when he retires. And, yeah, you had everything you want. It's not that you lack contentment, and yet God didn't give you the power to enjoy them. And six months after he retired, told you it was gritty and realistic and brutal and honest and... Sorry, ruining your Wednesday. Uh, chapter 7, verse 15... in my hevel life I have seen everything there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing Psalm 73 
Because actually that's true. Sometimes the FBI catches up with them, but not always. Um, And then you've got perhaps the most perplexing of all. Things which are good and just look like unalloyed wonderfulness. And yet there's still something lacking. Chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better. Well, than what? This is going to be interesting. <laughs> there is nothing better for a person that he, than that she, he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat and who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. So, a righteous man who enjoys and receives all these blessings from God. There's nothing better than to eat and drink and enjoy life. This is hevel. You get to the top and there's nothing there. Um, you've got the same thing actually in um, chapter 9. Go Verse 7, chapter 9, verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. What a wonderful thing to be told. Like, go and enjoy yourself, and you're newly married, and go and have a wonderful honeymoon. God bless you, have a great time. Let your garments be always white, let oil not be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with your wife all the days of your hevel life. (laughs) Ha ha, gotcha. You thought the honeymoon was going to last forever. Uh... So you can't encapsulate all that and more in any of those abstractions. What I think we have to do is to to work with the the concrete image of what Hevel is. It means mist or vapour, like fog, and be ready to latch on to whichever associations are evoked by the contexts in which we find ourselves. That's how you read good poetry, isn't it? Yeah, you, you, um, uh, love's not time's fool, though uh, ro- rosy lips and thump- thumping cheeks within his curling sickle's compass come, and so you do all the thing about the angel of death. And then the alliteration, what's that? Curling sickle's compass come. Have you ever chopped wheat? What sound does it make? It sounds like death hacking wheat down. It's just, let the context drive you to different evocations. I'll give you one example that that captures some of this. I saw this a lot in England. I've seen it once here. Um, Driving over the bridge at 820 past Lake Worth, but much more in Grovelands Park Lake in Southgate in North London, where you go down there. I used to go down there early in the morning because I go for a walk and pray and empty my head and stuff. And you'd go there for about four months of the year, and there'd be this mist hovering over the surface of the um, the lake and over the grass. It was in a depression. Obviously, lakes in a depression. That's why there's water there. Sorry, unnecessary geography lesson. And it some mornings I took videos of it and stuck them on my Facebook page when I still used Facebook. Um, 
because it's just so spectacularly beautiful. And some mornings you'd get there, and the, as the, the sun was going up, and you'd watch, and this thing is just it's sort of blowing this way and that. You can't see which way it's going next. It's like swirling around. You can't see through it. Yeah, it, it veils what's on the other side. It's insubstantial. And then as you watch, it just kind of disappears. And you're like, that was so, so wonderful, so beautiful. And it's just like, oh, never again will that be seen. You'll see something like it, go back tomorrow. But every day you've got this hevel, the temporiness. So some people will say, okay, it means temporary. No, it doesn't mean temporary. It evokes temporariness in lots of contexts. Life is all those things. And as we're working through the book, and we've done almost, um, it's not life is pointless. It's not life is frustrating. It's not life is short. It's not life is temporary. It's not life is unjust. It's not life is um, miserable. It is all those things sometimes in different situations and more. And it just depends on the situation. And sometimes it's life is wonderful. And you just, I remember one final little mini story, then we'll finish. Um, was it Abby around the campfire? Uh, not the campfire, the fire in our back garden when we had the fire and, and she said, I just want this evening to last forever. Oh, poor little thing. <laughs> we, had, um, we had a little brazier, like a little um, fire basket and... Um, we chopped up a... F- She's very little. She's, you know, like 15 or something. <laughs> Sorry, Abby. Okay, don't get... In- I'm not in trouble. Okay, don't beat me up. Um, she was tiny. She was like five or something. Um, and um, we, you know, summer evenings, it would get cold sometimes, but it's still kind of light and, or, or d- dusky. And so, anyway, sometimes winter evenings, we'd go out and we'd light a fire on a back patio and just kind of make s'mores and eat, drink hot chocolate and stuff. And Abby just loved loves those sort of times, family times. Becky's the same. We're all the same. We like that. And who wouldn't, right? It's nice. And she just said, oh, I, I just wish this evening could last forever. And I just thought, Hevel, sweetie. It's wonderful. And you know, she's grown up now. One third of my kids have just left home. Hevel, that is. So, it's wonderful, created glory that you can't cling to. You can't put the mist in a box and keep it on your desk so you can always have a little sip of it. It's just... So you see, this book is so utterly gritty and realistic and uh, potent and it captures so much of what life is about. Um, Yeah, I'm going to stop because otherwise if I carry on talking, we'll be here until midnight. Um, thank you for your patience, your involvement, your participation. Um, I hope I haven't made you miserable. I hope I've sobered you up a bit. There'll be some times when you might go home and have a good cry. That's all right. Do you want a drink? I'm going to go home and have a drink as well. Uh, let's raise a, glass, raise a glass together at nine o'clock. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> um, And enjoy it while it lasts. Right? Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we um, confess ourselves slightly bewildered.
but thrilled and uh, not surprised, but freshly delighted by the richness and um, overpowering insightfulness and truthfulness of your word, the Bible. In just two verses, you unpick us and show us more than we realized there was to know about ourselves. And we ask that you'd open our eyes more in coming weeks to the the depth and the the majesty and beauty of your creation and equip us to handle its frustrations as those who uh, inhabit the coming age when they will all be resolved, as well as those who inhabit this current age where we care about things which don't work out as we wish they would and cause us frustration and grief and sadness and sorrow. Help us to become wiser, deeper Christians through reading this wise and deep book. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everybody. Thank you very much for being here. We're going to pick up... Actually, there's still more I want to say about Hevel next week, would you believe it? But we'll talk about that next time. All right, God bless you. Have the rest of a great evening. See you soon. Yeah. Hmm, it's fine.